I'm Bianca Vivion, and this is Ask Viv. Happy 2021. Welcome to episode 28. Happy third year anniversary to Ask Viv. What I've learned over the course of 2020, what I've learned over the course of my early 20s, and what I feel like is coming full circle to me now is understanding just how little I am in control of anything. I think that of all the societal myth that I've bought into, all of the American myths, none was more prominent in my life than the myth of control. And I find that so much of the pain of 2020 that we had experienced was trying to come to terms with the fact that so much, both on an individual level, our personal finances, our career progression, our personal progression, our friendships and relationships were all a matter of control. And I think that This myth had such a strong hold, especially in the last five years, with this language of self-care and self-making and self-sufficiency and the world building. It's almost funny sometimes to me how far God will let you take it, how much he will even participate in allowing the myth of control. And I thought I was okay at letting things fall where they may knowing that I would land on my feet. And I even said when I last joined you that the best thing was to attempt to control ourselves when the world fell apart. But then I had an experience, many experiences, but one in particular having been in a major car accident. And all of a sudden, even my own faculties were out of my control. Couldn't move my hands very much. I would attempt to focus on things and they would go blurry. I would lose a train of thought in the middle of a sentence and I was faced with the reality of the limitations that I had within myself. And it really does something to a person like me when those faculties are broken down. Because when you live in this vein of exceptionalism, when you make strides and you run so fast and so far, it's so easy to become impressed with oneself. It's so easy to believe that the things manifested by my own hand were created by my own intelligence. And while this felt like the most painful thing, the most painful realization to understand the limitations of my own control, it forced me to do a few things that I don't think I would have ever done otherwise. The first thing it made me do was return home. It had been so long since I had been home to Atlanta where I grew up and came of age and where I thought that that trip was going to give me comfort and give me refuge, a place to rest my pain. Instead, what it did was showed me the origins of that obsession with control. And it made me confront a place where I remember having 
no control over anything, whether the light stayed on or off, mania and meshing of personalities, the chaotic warfare that seemed to ensue nearly daily, the presumptions and views of other people about who I was or who I was becoming. And I remember being a child and thinking, if you can just get out, then you'll meet that place where you control what happens. And I, I remember little things like growing up and my family wanting to decorate the Christmas tree and my sisters and I never agreeing on a color scheme. Them wanting colorful lights, me wanting white lights, them wanting tinsel, me hating tinsel. And I remember watching the ball drop with my mother on New Year's Eve and looking at Times Square and saying, why can't we be there? Why, why do we always have to be here? And it's so funny to think about it now that I spend nearly every New Year's Eve if I'm not out of the country I've watched the last two ball drops from home, even though I live about 15 minutes from Times Square. And I think that it was important for me to go home to see where all of that opposition and the warring against my personality created somebody who had something to prove so desperately. And it was so amazing to see myself so grown up and having left home such a long time ago, having been on my own for such a long while and still going home and still feeling like I had something to prove. And it was so amazing to see how much others around me had changed and how much they were so unwilling to participate. And yet I still had that weight on my shoulders, that, that chip on my shoulder a mile wide to just say recognize who I am acknowledge what I've done and I I felt so deeply the myth of thinking that we can make people see us and I I think again about how far I was allowed to take it I think now about how much that obsession with control how many how many good things it manifested and a mindset of ambition opportunism productivity and willpower to make not just my own dreams come true but to change the lives of others as well but i didn't see how much it had been breaking me down in my own life because in the world maybe i could be bianca vivian and that meant something in the way of power. But in my own life, where people know me and call me by my name, how difficult it is to move people around like chess pieces and make them feel me the way y'all often feel me, to make them see me on the pedestal that others had put me on. And what a far fall from that pedestal to learn just how much the vision that I had had of myself differed in the minds of some of the closest people to me. And I saw a question that I had been trying to answer for myself for a mighty long time. What exactly is home for? If it's not idea of refuge and comfort and warm lights and good food, and for so many of us it's not, then what good was it? And I think that for a long time I ran away from home and I stayed away from home and I stayed in venues and places, no matter how cold or isolated, that I could control because I didn't see the use in going to a place that was going to make me feel uncomfortable about who I was becoming or make me face in many ways who I really am. And I see now so clearly what I had been, question I had been asking for years, 
what good is home? It's for remembering. For some, it might be refuge, and for others, often not. But for all of us, it's for remembering. And I was going through this storehouse of memories. Meanwhile, I was in therapy, and I was pinpointing, remembering the holes punched in the walls and the chronic angers seated deep in the house and the way I learned to talk to people, the aggression and hostility, just waking up, the lack of regard for favors done and goods exchanged. And I remember why I developed this obsession with charity and generosity of making sure everybody had, feeling like nobody cared if I had. I learned my offhanded sarcasm and violent language, how natural it had become to me growing up in a hard way. I remember my desire to be mothered that birthed this maternal instinct to wanna help somebody else hold on to their girlhood. And I began to see myself and this mirror reflection image that I had obsessed upon, the one that I had been telling you all to look into for years, self-reflect, self-acknowledge. And I saw that really it was a it was a chain reaction. It was a reflection of this graveyard of memories, so much of it built out of fear, some of it built out of resilience, a whole lot of it built out of anger. And I just wanted to smash that mirror because more than wanting control, I began to desire freedom. Freedom even from the things I had told myself about myself. Freedom from other people's perceptions of me, good or bad. Freedom from my perceptions of others, good and bad. I wanted to know the truth. Who am I really? And part of that was letting in the perceptions that others had of me, some true and some so deeply untrue, and piecing them together and finding out which parts were truly me and which parts were truly beyond my control. And ironically, I began and I'm beginning for the first time in my life to see clearly what I truly have power over. I'm seeing the ways in which I was broken when I don't get my way. Seeing the ways in which I've tried to use wit and charm and sexuality to convince somebody to love me. Seeing the ways in which I use words to make people feel ways about themselves, good and bad, and how people began to believe that I was in control of what they thought about themselves. And I, and I used to love it when people would write to me and say, you changed my life. Now I know that I'm this, this, and this. And I would own that power until people close to me came to me and say, you made me feel small or you made me feel invisible. And then all of a sudden, I didn't want to own that control anymore. I didn't want to be in control of how anybody perceived themselves. And I realized how difficult it is to have power and compassion. And I'm realizing how much power it takes to let power go. Learning that some control that I thought I desired, I don't want so much anymore. And I'm tapping into something I've never known, which is emotional control. How much power I truly have over my own feelings, despite how little power I have over other people's actions. And I've begun having seen so much of my own life fractured 
and torn apart. And I'm not talking about losing a job or my finances or even losing loved ones as so many people experience those things in 2020. I'm just talking about my perception of self fracturing and breaking my physical body, fracturing and breaking pain in ways I hadn't known it. And I've said this before, but I, I see now that fracturing is sometimes the only way to let the light in and see things for how they truly are, to see the fragility of my own life and the lives of others and hold them a little bit closer, or perhaps when need be, let go. A little bit quicker because gripping tight to things that were breaking was also an establishment of control that I saw myself do a lot in 2019 do a lot in 2020 and for the first time I'm feeling young feeling real 24 and perhaps that's why it took this episode so damn long because I'm so used to sitting before this microphone and telling you all what's what and who's who and who I think I am. And it's hard. It's hard to sit down and say, I let so much of my own self-worth, I let so much of the good stuff that I could have had slip through my hands, trying to hold on to so much of what meant nothing at all. Holding on to bitterness and pain, making me lose the vision that I had for my family, making me hate the people closest to me sometimes. And it's hard because I think the relinquishment of control is when we begin to tell ourselves the truth about ourselves. And sometimes that truth is so ugly. When we see ourselves in the ways that we've been unkind and unkempt and negligent, and procrastinating and indolent and insolent and all the other words. But I think for the first time I'm seeing the things I like about myself that perhaps nobody else noticed and perhaps nobody else ever will. And I'm learning myself. And perhaps for that reason, this is not just a monumental shift for me, but my projects as they exist for Ask Viv and the books that have yet to be written for the opportunities that I have before me because maybe it's time, maybe this year, rather than trying to regain what we felt we lost in the way of control, rather than trying to build ourselves up and the myth of security that we held so fast to, in years before, maybe it's time that we approach life with a question and an openness. What do I need? What are the needs of my brother? How can I help? What are my limitations? And what is truly in my control? And I think that when we do that and we step lightly towards our answers, when we're not so aggressive and hostile, when we find the middle ground and we hold loosely to the things we love and we hold loosely to the things we hate, when we're fiercely protective over the things that matter and completely indifferent to the things that don't, maybe we will find not success, not prosperity, not productivity, not ambition, not opportunity, but we might have a real shot at happiness. And I think for the first time in my life, I have a real shot at happiness. And that's what I'm wishing for you in 2021. And may it be untethered to anything beyond the soul. Now let's get into these questions because I know that's your favorite part. Dear Viv, I oftentimes find myself oddly unaware of my own feelings. I have my own notions of what led me to this point, but I'm unsure of how to get to a place where I'm fully aware 
and trust my own thoughts and feelings. So many people think I'm super headstrong when in reality, I'm in constant battle with myself and my mind. How do I deal with this? I'm coming into a process of finally understanding how feelings work and I'm realizing that the only way to participate in this process is to do something that many of us hate to do and that is slow down. I think so much about how my mind works so quickly and for such a long time and in still many many ways it is my cornerstone strength. It is my most profitable attribute and it has made many many incredible things happen for me the just the sheer pace at which I'm willing and able to do things but learning the things that we're able to use to control things and out in the world are not necessarily to our benefit in our private world I'll tell you this if you've ever been punched before you'll know it actually takes a moment to fully react. The same as being in a car accident. If you've ever really experienced any dramatic physical pain, anybody will know that there's an offset before the pain starts. It's almost as if your body floats above your body and for a microsecond, you're witnessing the act being done before you experience feeling. And that feeling you feel in your body. Well, emotional pain is no different. Feelings live in the body. And so I'd say to become aware of your own feelings, you have to become aware of your body. So many people live separate from their own body that they're not able to get in touch with their emotions because they're living in this kind of disjointed robot in which they've compartmentalized their mind from their body. When you feel fear, it's often felt in your gut. When you feel intense sadness that you can't express, it's often felt in the throat. When you feel tired, it's often felt in the back. When you feel mentally drained, it's often felt in the forehead. The more that you become aware of these sensations that are happening in your body, the more you'll be able to tell yourself, wait, I'm feeling something. I find that often when I met with uneasy feelings, especially what I'm learning to do is not resort to the mouth because if you know me, you know me. First place I'll take it is words. And I think about the fact that I grew up with two sisters and we were constantly bickering. And my eldest sister, her weapon of choice was her hands. She was a quiet kid and she didn't have the arsenal of language that I had wielded since I was able to speak. And so she would so often throw hands, it was her first reaction. And I'm learning for me, the first thing to do is say, ah, no. Even sometimes I'll agree with things and say no. I remember where I learned how to react to my own feelings. And I did it for so long from a place of defensiveness and we all have those spots that when you go back if you were somebody who was the youngest child and were often talked over then you'll find as my younger sister finds she immediately yells raises her voice the minute that she feels any kind of defense and it's funny because these things are valid when we're children they're necessary 
But as we become older, we don't remember where they came from and they become compulsory and they feel as if they're beyond our control, but we can control. And the way that we do it is we slow down. When people say something that's offensive or when we get bad news, immediately, rather than reacting the way that you would normally react, I implore you to do that outer body thing. Just bear witness to the act. I mean, it's incredible the strength of humans, what we can bear when we just sit and witness something and attempt really to feel nothing and then let yourself feel acknowledge what you feel i'm feeling sadness i'm feeling anger I'm feeling frustration. And what's so beautiful about that awareness is that we come into a place of control where we can either embrace that feeling and thus let it do whatever it does in the body. I'm feeling sadness, I'm feeling mournful. And then we can cry, which for so many people, men especially, they don't know how or have seriously forgotten. Or someone has attempted to humiliate you and they say something that is degrading of your dignity and you can let it hit you like a wall and in reaction it can be anger but I'm realizing that there's these alternate methodologies that you can choose you can laugh it off humor you can become angry and self-righteous or you can choose to feel nothing at all and it's so crazy that I didn't know that for such a long time because I had never allotted enough in between between the act, between the stimulus action and my reaction. I didn't realize that if you can just wedge a few seconds of time between when the thing is said or done or seen or felt or heard and the time when you react to it, that you can actually choose your mode of action and in that become graceful. It's honestly amazing. I'm realizing grace, graciousness exists in that small period of time. Slow down. Slow down, slow down. Dear Viv, when I explained to my mother that I was abused, she listened and basically told me it happened so long ago that I should just try my best to forget it and be happy now. She's an immigrant and we come from an African background where we don't usually discuss mental health. And I wish that she was more supportive when I told her, but I also do not blame her for her ignorance. I love her enough to understand that she didn't have the same educational opportunities as I did instead of shunning her for her lack of support. I feel guilty when I attempt to reconcile my mental health disorder with Islam, as I feel I shouldn't turn to anybody else other than Allah for help. What is your advice in regards to navigating this road of dealing with childhood trauma? How can I overcome it? Is there hope for living a normal life? It's funny to me that you say you love your mother enough to recognize that she cannot control how she reacts to what you've told her, that she cannot control the circumstances, that she cannot go back and undo the things that you've experienced. Give yourself that same grace. Acknowledge that you cannot control it and you cannot go back and you cannot change it. And it's not about forgetting. In fact, it's about remembering. It's about remembering what happened to us, but not like watching a scary movie. It's not even about remembering things as they were because with trauma, it's so hard to do so. And I think that actually what defines a traumatic experience is when you cannot quite pinpoint how things happen or why they happen or when they happen in the way that you can regular day-to-day events like going to work or getting on the bus or heading to the grocery store. There's a fracturing of memory there 
And so much of it is that we want other people to acknowledge what happened to give ourselves some sense of mental stability. But we will never remember things as they were. We only remember things as they are. And that's what you have to do. You have to deal with the ways in which your trauma manifests itself in your everyday, in your fears, in your insecurities, in your mistrust in your reluctance, in your lack of self-confidence, however it manifests, because that is what you can control. And when you see it, and when you acknowledge, and when you began to piece together what that person has made of this person, then you begin to take real dominion over who you are today, because today can always be changed. You say, this thing makes me defensive. I don't want to be defensive. This thing makes me reluctant to love, and I don't want to be reluctant to love. And when you see this thing beyond my control made me into this person who I can control, then you begin to change. And this is not done by sheer insight and mental superpower. I've been in therapy for months now and it's working because what it allows is somebody to ask me a professional to ask me the right questions the gaps that i failed to fill really challenging me to go back into my memory and to acknowledge and then even more so challenging me to release in a way that is so schematic and planned out and it's not a danger to my heart or my mind in the way it can often be when we self-diagnose or ask our friends to bear the weight of our pain or our family members. And it's been the biggest blessing. And I know it was a godsend because it came at a point in my life, a one more thing point that too many of us go through where if just one more thing happens, we might've been living prosperously and well and happily and fulfilled, but we were living unsustainably. And therapy helped me remap out my life so that it's not just if one more piece of information comes, if one more phone call rings and bad news is on the other side. And I don't shy away from that. And I don't fear reconciling it with my religion or my Islam. Prophets were literally sent to give the people an ideal of who they could be. And God believes that if we conquer pain and we go through these battles, that we can become an ideal self. And my belief that there is an ideal self to be had and happiness to be had is so tied up in my belief with God himself that I know that not only are they reconcilable, but they're inextricable because God wants for us happiness. And I know that, and I, I didn't know that before, but I know that now. I think that the key to understanding and, and overcoming childhood trauma is realizing that it is just that childhood there comes a point i told my younger sister this the other day i say what we're dealing in now the frustration of today the shit that we have to do and don't want to do that's grown woman's business this life what we understand to be life in islam this is not heaven even when we so desire it to be even when we feel like it is and it's not hell even when we fear that's what we're going through it's jihad, it's warfare, and none of us, even the most privileged and joyous and prosperous people, nobody chooses their frontier for this warfare. For some of us, it's abuse, real abuse. For some of us, it's neglect. For some of us, it's disease, poverty. We all face 
what we face in this lifetime. And we do not choose the frontier of our warfare, but we can choose the method of battle. And for some of us, we look away and we let shit pile up resentments and bitterness and we stay silent in the face of things that matter. And it's not me to judge anybody's method, but I found when we confront and say, this hurt and the ways that it hurt changed me, but I'm ready to change again, to say I might never forget because there are certain kinds of trauma losing a parent, being violated in ways we never thought people could, heartbreak, they're embedded in the body and that needs acknowledgement too. But there is life beyond coping and I don't know what a normal life is. I'm not sure, I've never ever lived one. And the people I know who have live in such a deep state of dissociation and emotional compartmentalization that I wouldn't wish that for you or I for a second. But I do know on this pursuit of exuberance and happiness and pleasure and real living that it comes with pain. And it's one question, one question, the question that every prophet asked before they healed the sick or gave to the poor. And that's, are you willing to be made whole? Are you ready to move on? Are you ready to let childhood go? Are you ready to accept the things that you cannot change? And are you ready to engender the courage it takes to change the things that you can? If you're willing to remember, which so much of trauma is wanting to forget as much as being forced to relive, but if you're really ready to sit down with the things that happen and the woman that they've made of you, and if you're willing to let her go, to say, I've done the best I can, fashioning myself of broken pieces, I've prayed as many times to forget as I possibly can, and I'm ready to be someone else, somebody not so informed by the battles that I face, then you will stand before the possibility of who you can be and it will shock you what you're able to get over. It, it can shock you what a little courage of conviction can do, what a little forgiveness of self can do, what a little acknowledgement. I've taken the hand of the girl I used to be and I realize that some things went on right in front of me, some things went on inside of me and it wasn't right. And I don't think I can call up every person, every violation and put them on trial and make them feel what they made me feel. And I don't know if it would help me. Justice is overrated, but mercy, letting yourself off the hook, letting the people that you love sometimes off the hook for their negligence, real mercy, that is Islam. That's what it takes, what we need. That's in our sphere of influence. And it's a high price to let it go. But you already know the cost of holding on. Dear Viv, how can a person escape who your family made you to be, especially if your family has been toxic and abusive? Is it possible to come from a broken place and not be broken? I don't believe that our families make us to be anything or any way other than the things that we're genetically predisposed to, those tricky mental health things that literally run through our DNA and even those are manageable and can be lived with and thriving. And I also believe that the moniker of broken, that modifier, if you own that and you live that way and you function that way, and you truly believe that. It's like believing that you're cursed. Everything sort of follows suit and ascribes to that. 
No, what our, what our families actually do, what other people actually do, is they give us a narrative about ourselves and we elect to believe that narrative and we repeat that narrative as many times as it takes to cement itself into what we call identity. And for some things, they're prideful and they are great sources of meaning and joy. If I tell you this is what it means to be a black person in America and your family tells you your heritage and where you come from and the way that things are done and the way things are and how they've been and how they've changed and you rehearse that and when you say I'm a black American it's something that brings you great joy and you inherited that that's your inheritance but there are these other times when people tell you that you're dumb or tell you that you're incapable or tell you that you're ugly and you hear that so many times over the course of your childhood and adolescence that that becomes the narrative that you rehearse and rehearse again. We believe them because these are the people that have witnessed us the most, we believe. We really think that these are the people that are studying us and thinking of us and putting the pieces together the way that we are in our own minds, but they're not, they're not. That was a misconception that I held for so long that I was being studied closely, that people were thinking of my actions and my accolades and my efforts and that they were calculating them deeply. And what resulted from that was their conception of me. And it must have been correct because they had been around for so long to do it. But the truth is only I was the one doing that work. And so at some point in my life, I decided what I thought of me was much better of an analysis, was much more accurate and meaningful than what other people had calculated of my worth because they weren't there when I was dreaming. They weren't there in the midnight hour. They weren't there when I was praying my prayers or singing my songs in the shower or learning to cook or any of these small private moments that were really when I added up the worth of my womanhood. And just because they had mildly observed me even every day, they had seen me take too long in the shower and decided I was selfish or had a bad day and said something offhanded and decided I was evil. Saw me take one too many moments for myself and decide I was narcissistic. And they had built up these resentments over time so that whenever they told me it was always in the most hostile and aggressive ways. And the worst thing you can do oftentimes is believe that because so much of what other people say to you is so convoluted and mixed in a melting pot of all their other experiences and shortcomings and hatreds and prejudices and distaste and dislikes and it goes so damn deep that if you really studied it and you really took the time to acknowledge the shit that other people are going through, you would never give anyone that power over you. Not even your own mother, not even your own father. And when we begin to take that time, that, that time that's so precious, I, I began to take mine at 17 when I moved out for the first time. Time. When you get away time, when you live alone or with new people and you begin to see the way that you interact with people who are from other worlds and the way you interact with yourself, when you make up your own bed in the morning and nobody is asking you or looking over you, then you realize that you're a bit disciplined. When you keep your word and show up for somebody who's not your family and can't do anything for you, then you realize that you are trustworthy. When you go out and buy a dress and you come home and you put it on just for yourself in the mirror and you say, wow, I don't look 
half bad, you can begin this new rehearsal in this game that life is. As Shakespeare says, all the world is a stage. And you begin to rehearse new things and better things when you hold loosely to your own self-perception of the bad things. Someone recently told me something that really changed my mind about a lot. They said, Bianca, what matters to you? And I realized that so much of what I would have listed on knee-jerk reaction had they not stopped me was things that matter to other people about me. And what this person told me was, you need to think every single day, what matters? What matters? And put yourself on the top of that list and put your, your self-perception on the top of that list for even a week and you'll begin to see that the person that you believe that you are, truly believe that you are, outside of that graveyard of memories that home can be, that brokenness, that it's not so bad. And I don't know about being broken, but I know what it feels like to have a lot of work to do and feeling like sometimes the road in front of us is so long before we're going to wake up and feel good about who we are. But I know that that is a meaningful road, more meaningful than it could ever be to just be stuck in that same story that our families or our friends or our exes told us about ourselves. That as children, we could not choose whether or not to believe it because it was the only thing we knew. And we were stuck in our small town, in our small houses, in the small ways of small-minded people who wanted us to believe that we were incapable of changing. But then you hear that voice and maybe today, God willing, it's my own and it's somebody you admire or it's just somebody who sounds so much more sure and clear and hopeful and positive and they tell you just change and perhaps sometimes that's what we're looking for is permission to be somebody else permission to be okay that when you return home and people tell you you've changed to just be able to say well shit changes and be better for it and to be able to let go of that person that they made you out to be and decide to be who you really are. You don't know how many people grow up in houses where they have to be straight only to find out that they're not. Houses where they have to be docile only to find out that they're quite outgoing. Houses where they have to be all about what everybody else needs just to find out how much they had been neglecting themselves. That's what growing up is for. It's to be untethered to that time where we had so little control over the way things were and find the little avenues of control that we have in our life through our own sense of love and self-acknowledgement. And when you do that, Life is not just, can you be something other than fucked up? You can really be okay, and you're gonna be okay. You will. Lastly, dear Viv, what does it mean to be an artist in these difficult times? I would say that at many times, in many junctures, it's not so fun to be an artist. Namely, when everyone else thinks that the world is pristine and beautiful and everything is going well and people are self-congratulatory and they're making money and they're hustling and they're hustling other people, it becomes very difficult to be an artist because artists being the vocation where you make people aware of what they do not want to be aware of is so frustrating in times of general contentment. But in times like these, times of malaise and discomfort and uneasiness and a lack of expectation and hope. I can't name a better time to be an artist. 
because all of that bravado of people who wanted to tell you 10 steps to happiness and five ways to get rich quick and here's the things to invest in. When the whole world is falling apart, those people really fall off the radar. And the people, the artists, who should always have more questions than answers, drive themselves to the forefront because people need to begin to ask themselves new questions, looking for new methodologies, new points of view and new perspectives. And I'd say that the role of the artist at a time like this is to not look away. As things fall apart and pieces are fashioned together, don't look away. When you can't see anybody's face other than their eyes and you're trying to find out where to focus the camera, don't look away. And when bodies are stacked up in morgues and every day there seems to be new bad news delivered and it reads like an Octavia Butler novel, don't look away. Find yourself facing the hard things and using whatever your medium is or mediums are to witness this time in which the easiest thing to do is hide when the easiest thing to do is acquiesce to those things that attempt to control us and art is one of the very few venues in life god-given venues in which we truly can decide the way things are and it's why the artists and a lot of times we get caught up in real life because we attempt to fashion and make out of the world what we attempt to fashion and make on our canvases and our mediums and our models. But at a time such as this, when there's so little influence to be had or found and there's so little to be done, that's the time where we thrive the most. That's the time for doing. Don't look away. It's scary and it's hard, but other people need us. I'm finding maybe that's why now I'm really, really going in on myself and combing through and acknowledging and seeing the mistakes I've made, asking myself the hard questions, harder than even the usual questions I ask, which are typically hard questions, and trying to really see things for the way that they are so that I can really see things for the way that they could be. Imagination is such an underrated form of control. When we imagine the way that things could be if they weren't so damn bad, I feel like we're halfway there. That's all the time that we have for today. I don't know the state that 2021 has found you in. Some of us are feeling grounded. Our head is officially out of the clouds and that can be so daunting and depressing in the aftermath of a storm when you see all of the debris and work yet to be done. Some of us find ourselves in a state of fear, in suspended calamity that's going on a year old now, and we're not sure how to wiggle our way out of it. Some of us are looking at bills piling up, or not being able to go home, or a lonely holiday, and we're feeling stuck between a rock and a hard place. And I am just living life, trying to keep my feet on solid ground, hopeful for so many things to come. In the words of the great Zora Neale Hurston, some years ask questions and some years give answers. And I used to, on New Year's, since I read that in the 10th grade, want every year of mine to be an answers year. I said, please, please, please give me the answers, give me the answers. And then 2020 came and gave so many answers, was so unrelenting 
wanting that it wasn't the time to ask what's the true meaning of life it, it wasn't the time to ponder or sit back because everything necessitated so much action it's like there wasn't enough tears to mourn every death it, it was it was like those cartoons you see where there's water coming out of a wall and the character attempts to put one hand on one of the spouts that's pouring out and then they move their hand and it seems like there's just not enough limbs for all of the water coming in and I used to think that the only thing to do at a time like that was to sink or swim I think that I even said that four episodes ago now's the time that we decide who we really are and you're going to sink or you're going to swim but the other alternative that comes to mind I think of the young poet Ocean Vong who says what were you before you met me and they say I think I was drowning and he asks and what are you now and they say water and I'm hoping that by analyzing and thinking of what I really control and what I really don't that I might be able to adapt a bit of that fluidity and become like water I think all the time all the time perhaps one of my favorite poems ever written and I hope one day I get the chance to tell her is Revolutionary Dreams by Nikki Giovanni and it's what I'll leave you with today it goes I used to dream militant dreams of taking over America to show these white folks how it should be done I used to dream radical dreams of blowing everyone away with my perceptive powers of correct analysis I even used to think I'd be the one to stop the riot and negotiate the peace. Then I awoke and dug that if I dreamed natural dreams of being a natural woman, doing what a natural woman does when she's natural, I would have a revolution. On this first day of a new journey, the best time to acknowledge and release and look forward. If you're starting your year with these messages, I thank you for another year alongside me. Three years we've shared together. And after such a trying and mournful year, for this year, I wish you all the living that life can offer and all the courage it takes to live it. More life, more love. I'm Bianca Vivion, and if you ever need anything at all, you can always ask Viv.